All right. We've got three more weeks left in Mark. We have a lot to cover today. But I actually want to start with one verse in Hebrews to kind of set the stage, uh, kind of set a framework for what we're going to see in Mark today. This, uh, this will keep coming back to this verse. It'll help um, explain and, and see the significance of what we see in Mark today. So Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So we're told that Jesus, this high priest, our high priest has been tempted or tested. The word could be translated tested. Jesus' obedience was, was tested and tried. His faithfulness was tested and tried. His trust in God was tested and tried. And not just once, but in every respect. And lest we think that this was just a light and easy thing because it's, it's Jesus we're talking about. No, as we'll see today, this was a harrowing, um, agonizing ordeal for Jesus. This, this was suffering, intense, real suffering, crying out to God for any other way. And yet, he was without sin. In the agony and pain of his testing and his trials, he did not sin. He did not waver in his trust in God. He stayed faithful. Now, you might wonder how this could be good news for us. Because you might think that, well, well, he did it. So perhaps when I'm weak, when I can't be as faithful as Jesus was, now, then he's just going to gloat over me. He's just going to hold his perfect faithfulness over me and be condescending. Come on, get your act together. But this is, uh, we are told the exact opposite. We are told that he can sympathize. He is able to sympathize with, with our weaknesses. Um, his tempting and testing was actually the cause for him to enter into and experience and understand and sympathize with our suffering. He knows bitter pain and loss. He knows sorrow unto death and temptation to find an easier but less faithful way. Our God knows this. And, and not just because he's God and he's all-knowing and he looks down from afar and he sees what we're going through, but he knows it experientially. He experienced it himself. He entered into our weaknesses, our suffering. So we're going to see this today. We're going to reflect on this today and see Jesus tested in ways that you can't make up. That, that no, one would ever, no one would ever make up this section of Scripture. So as we consider this, ask the question, who is this Jesus? And what does it mean? What does his faithfulness and his obedience and his trust in God mean for us? Okay, so we're going to cover a lot of Scripture today. We're going to start at verse 26 in chapter 14. Mark 14, 26. We're going to go all the way through the end of the chapter. So it begins, When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though 
They all fall away. I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Now, if, if you've made it to this point in the Gospels and you're still thinking that the disciples are kind of smaller heroes, but heroes nonetheless, uh, this chapter is going to, to break that. Uh, they are going to fail again and again. The people that Jesus has spent the most time with, that he had discipled for several years and given himself to, would all deny and abandon him. Uh, Peter, the one who seemed to have the most inner access to Jesus, um, will deny him three times outright. And Jesus even warns him, this is coming. And he still, still does it. So this is the first test that we see Jesus have. He's tested by the betrayal and denial of those closest to him. And in this, he stays faithful to God. The, the people that were closest to him bailed. We're not going this path with you, Jesus. And yet Jesus stays resolutely marching down this path, trusting in God. He doesn't lash out at the disciples. Actually says, I'll see you again after the resurrection. He doesn't turn to bitterness, just look for some, something or someone to blame this all on. He continues in faith and obedience towards God. But that will not be the greatest test. There's more to come. Verse 32 And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet... Not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to him, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So we need to reflect on Jesus's agony here. There is great significance in what Jesus goes through in this event. Uh, We are told that he is greatly distressed and troubled sorrowful. He says, I I am sorrowful under, my soul is sorrowful unto death. And remember that Jesus doesn't lie. So he's not exaggerating here to create an effect. Uh, He is literally sorrowful up to the point of death at anticipating what is to come. Luke in his gospel adds that he, he was in such agony that his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. So why is Jesus like this? Why, why such agony? Well, there are a few things to consider. One is, is the betrayal and denial of his, those closest to him. 
which surely must have hurt significantly. Then there's the hatred and the, the condemnation of his enemies. There's the human physical agony of suffering and death, excruciating death on a cross. God, the creator of life, willingly walks towards his own death. But none of that fully explains why Jesus is in such agony and turmoil here. Um, Jesus had himself told his, his followers that when they were insulted or persecuted or slandered, that they should rejoice and be glad. And so was, could Jesus not take his own words here? Could he not practice what he preached? You can also think of many martyrs throughout history, uh, Christian and otherwise. People who have died for various causes. Many people have walked to their death very boldly and calmly. Um, their Christian history gives us numerous examples of these. So is Jesus less courageous, less trusting in God than all of these? Or is he going through something that none of them went through? Is there some other element to Jesus' death that is making it much worse? Theologian John Stott writes, Up till now, he had been clear-sighted about the necessity of his sufferings of death. We've seen that as we've gone through Mark. He's marching to his death. He's telling his disciples about it. He's, he knows this is the course. Determined to fulfill his destiny and vehement in opposing any who sought to deflect him. Had all that suddenly changed? Was he now, after all, when the moment of testing came, a coward? No. No, all the evidence of his former teaching and character and behavior is against such a conclusion. And so greater than all of the physical and emotional agony that Jesus was experiencing and anticipating was a spiritual agony of what he was about to go through, the spiritual ramifications and realities of his death. On the cross, Jesus would bear the full weight of our sin and God's just judgment against it. Our sin is much worse than we think. Um, part of the reality of being sinners is not just that we sin, but that we downplay our sin. We don't think it's that big of a deal. We don't think rebelling against God, ignoring our creator God, is that big of a deal. But it's as big of a deal as Jesus, God in the flesh, dying in our place. And that's how the rest of the New Testament understands Jesus' death. Uh, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, For our sake, he made him who knew no sin, so God made Jesus, who made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made Jesus to be sin. Uh, 1 Peter 2, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, Jesus was bearing our sins. He became sin for us. Uh, this is often called the great exchange, whereby Jesus takes on our sin and all of its consequences, and we get Jesus' righteousness and faithfulness and obedience and all of its consequences. And as Jesus did this, the other aspect to consider in this is that he was temporarily um, separated from God the Father. And so on the cross, what does Jesus say? Where is his focus? Is it on the, the physical pain of being on the cross? Is it on the emotional pain of those who had betrayed him? No, it's, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
at the, the darkest hour, the darkest aspect is that there was a momentary separation between God the Father and God the Son. Jesus experienced the separation from God and all of his goodness that our sin deserved. And so this is the agony over which Jesus is distressed and troubled, sorrowful even unto death. And he hasn't even, he is not even there yet. This is before, this is anticipating it, just the thought of this. So what do we do with this? How does this affect us? Well, if we return to our Hebrews passage, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. This should give us great comfort. It should comfort us when we feel overwhelmed and sorrowful and pressed down. In these times, Jesus doesn't say, come on, get your act together. That's nothing compared to what I went through. No, he says, I know, I know. I, I was there. I, it, I understand what you're going through. I'm with you. Look to me. Come to me. One who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Um, and what that means is that he wasn't doing this to show the way for the strong and the able and the worthy. Jesus wasn't doing this to show how to proceed only for those who are strong and able and worthy, but to sympathize with the weak and unable and unworthy. To extend grace to those who most needed it. Do you, do you understand that? That Jesus' faithfulness through testing isn't a cause for him to gloat over us, but is a cause, it's an opportunity for him to draw near to us. It's not a cause to see, look what I did, do what I did. It's a cause for him to draw near to us in our weakness, in our suffering, to draw near to us in his compassion, in his gentleness, in his understanding. We see the kindness and the mercy of God in this. Now, we need to spend a few minutes unpacking what Jesus prays here. Um, so Jesus prays, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And so the gist of this prayer seems to be, Father, if there's any other way to accomplish our plan, let it be. If there's any other way to bring about redemption, let it be. But ultimately not what I will, but what you will. This is an incredible prayer. Again, one that if you were attempting to fabricate some stories about this guy that maybe or maybe not was, was the Messiah or God in the flesh, you would not include in the story. Like, you don't make this up. Uh, you see Jesus' humanity clearly uh, in a way that might make us a little uncomfortable, right? The only way that this prayer of Jesus makes sense is if is in light of the extreme agony about, of what he's about to face and his full knowledge of that and anticipating that. He doesn't sin. He doesn't give in to, to sin here, but he's not cold and unmoved by what is about to come. He's greatly affected by it. 
We also see his faith and faithfulness towards God. In this moment of great agony, he continues to commit himself to the Father's will. Not what I will, but what you will. And we see in the end that there is no other way. That the only way of redemption, the only way for salvation is the cross. Salvation is only and ever from the Lord by the sacrifice of Jesus. The cross has to happen. If God is going to redeem a people for himself, if we are to have any hope of being standing confidently before God and experiencing his goodness and favor. And in the end, both God the Father and Jesus the Son are agreed about this. Now, before moving on, just consider the the wonder, the significance of an account like this being included in the Gospels, right? I've kind of hinted at this, but Sometimes the argument is made that the early church made up some stories about Jesus. Like there was this real guy, Jesus, but they kind of fancified some stories and made him seem like somebody that he wasn't, greater than he was, um, made him seem like this Messiah or perhaps God himself, but he really wasn't, wasn't that. And if that is the case, it begs the question, why do you include this? Why include an event where this Jesus, who might or might not be Messiah and or God in the flesh, goes through this intense agony and asks the Father if there's any other way. You don't include this unless it actually happened. Uh, similarly, the disciples, um, why include, who are the, the leaders of the early church, why include all of these accounts of them being abysmal failures, of giving up on their their king, in his hour of direst need. need. Matthew is one of the disciples and wrote one of the Gospels. Our Gospel, Mark here, is, uh, Mark is likely writing from, with accounts from Peter. Mark is the writer and attendant of Peter. And so Peter is having these stories of his denying, just totally not being someone that you're like, yeah, leader of the future church. But these accounts are here. And the only explanation is that they actually happened. Continuing on, as Jesus marches towards his death, verse 43. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I kiss, I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut it off, cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as, as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Um, so throughout these events, we see that Jesus has multiple opportunities to go a different way, to choose a different, easier path. And, and he rejects them all. He continues resolutely to the cross. 
So here he could go along with Peter's um, attempt to, to, to fight back. And yet he tells Peter in Matthew's gospel, could I not call on my father and call, and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels. And so Jesus says, let the scriptures be fulfilled. Let the scriptures be fulfilled. These are incredible words. If ever there was an individual, if ever there was a time where there was sufficient motivation to question God's word, right? If ever there was an individual in a moment with sufficient motivation to question the the truth and validity of God's word, would it not be Jesus in this moment? Because for Jesus in this moment, submitting fully to God's word means submitting fully to God's, to, to his death. Why not just say, well, God's word is mostly true, but yeah, those, those, I don't really like those couple things. Why not say, I, I don't see how God's word is compatible with God's goodness in this. I don't see how this path that God has marked out for me is compatible with God's goodness. So let's just, let's just ignore that or, 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 or twist that a little bit. I mean, surely we have thoughts like this at times. Like, could that actually, what do we do with that? I, I, how is God's goodness compatible with that? But Jesus in this moment is absolutely faithfully committed to God's word when it means his suffering and death. And not just with his head, like these are not just, yeah, I believe, I believe that, with his whole life. He submits his whole life to God's word. So how do we respond to that? Well, certainly that, that should be an encouragement and exhortation to us to also hold firmly to God's word, to trust God's word when we don't know all the answers, when we can't see how his goodness is compatible with it, to continue faithfully. Every word of God proves true, says the Proverbs. Although we don't always see how that is the case, but God's ways are above our ways. God's thoughts are above our ways. But more than just looking to Jesus as an example of faithfulness to God's word in this, we should look to Jesus and worship him for his response. We should worship Jesus for continuing faithfully in obedience to God through this. That Jesus did what we don't always do. That he lived the perfect life of obedience and faithfulness to his father. Um, Jesus is not only an example who points us in the right direction or a teacher who, who says this is what you should do. He's also the one who goes before us and walks the path that we don't walk all the time. Salvation is of the Lord. He's the Savior. We see Jesus continue down this path. Verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, 
and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Um, so in a way, Jesus has been on trial his whole life. Jesus has, uh, people have been asking the question, who is this? People have been trying to figure out, who is this? What is the identity of Jesus? Is he really this long expected Messiah or Christ kingly ruler? And here he has answered, asked that question directly by the high priest. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Now, remember that the Jews are expecting this, this Messiah Christ, this anointed one to come um, and who had been spoken of in many ways in scripture. And they expected this Messiah to be a great man come from God who would save God's people. But they didn't necessarily expect him to be God, God himself. And so when Jesus answered the high priest, answers the high priest, he answers, yes, I am the Messiah. And he could have stopped there. Actually, he could have just not said anything and probably evaded his death. You could just be silent. But he answers, yep. And he goes on, claims even more. He says, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, power is a way just to refer to God. And seated at the right hand of God means that you have the highest position of honor at his side or are sitting with him in... in in authority and rule. And so Jesus claims that these men will see him sitting next to God in the highest place of honor. Again, if Jesus is trying to avoid his death, he says exactly the thing you don't want to say. Jesus makes no effort to take a different path. He openly claims to have more authority and rights and power than any other human being that has ever lived. And immediately they all charge him with blasphemy and they condemn him to death. And this is the most unjust, unfair death and condemnation in the history of the world, right? The, the, very, the, the only human being that has ever lived who didn't deserve to die, dies. It's, it's helpful to consider the times when we claim injustice when we claim unfairness, the times when we feel bitter because we, we, people are not treating us as they ought to, when we've been treated unfairly by our family or by our boss or by our church or by life or fate or God. But all of that pales in comparison to this, right? In the times when we are wailing, wallowing in self-pity, which we all do. Think on Jesus. Our cries of injustice 
pale in comparison to the injustice of that day. He takes on what we all deserve, but which he most certainly did not deserve. And he does it without any complaining, any blame shifting, any putting up a fight, but with resolved faith in God the Father and resolved love for us. I've been pointing us to Hebrews 12, 2, quite a bit recently. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So you picture Jesus setting his eyes on the cross and seeing beyond the cross and seeing the joy. The joy of surely being reunited with his father, but also the joy of drawing us into fellowship with himself. The joy, not just kind of a legal, this is going to happen, but joy. In his darkest hour, Jesus looks forward and has joy in, in what the cross will accomplish. And then in our final verses, we see Jesus' words fulfilled about Peter. And again, remember, Peter is most likely the influence behind this very gospel and we have all of the t these tidbits about Peter that you don't write about yourself for a large audience if you, um, unless they're true. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to, again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he get, began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. If you're reading your Bibles looking merely for examples to follow, you have no use for a section like this. Peter is timid, weak, fails Jesus at, his, at the most excruciating moment. If our only way of reading the Bible is to find a good example and be like him or her, we will miss the significance of so much of the Bible. But if we're reading the Bible looking for a God who shows grace to the timid and the weak and the failures and the suffering, then you realize the significance of a passage like this. Because not only did Jesus choose a man like Peter in the first place, Jesus goes on to, Jesus doesn't give up on Peter after this. He goes on to reaffirm him. And Peter will go on to be a great leader in the church the rock of the early church. It is exactly men and women like Peter that Jesus commits himself to and dies for and draws lovingly into his presence. You see, God's purpose in the Bible is to lead us to worship. It's not just to, to set us on a path that's right, but to lead us into worship of himself. And he does that as he 
as, as he exposes our sin and weakness and leads us into his kindness and grace and goodness. As he shows us our great need for himself and his great provision and heart and love for us. To see that he delights. Not just that he sets a path for this to happen, but he delights and has joy in drawing sinners into his presence. And when we see this, when we see his heart and see who he is, we are called to respond in repentance for our sin, turning away and and clinging in faith to to Jesus. Turning away from our self-worship, our self-righteousness, our self-sufficiency, and finding a new and better worth and righteousness and sufficiency and identity and comfort and hope in him. And not just once, but continually. Continually embracing his grace, rejoicing in his goodness, trusting in his sovereignty, and worshiping and obeying him in all things. This is what God is doing. Let's pray.